Hi, everyone. This is Brooke James. Welcome to The Grief Coach. Today, I am so excited. We have with us Megan Reardon Jarvis. She is a trauma and grief-informed therapist in private practice in Washington, D.C. She writes the popular blog, Grief is My Side Hustle, where she runs a free grief writing workshop. And Megan is working on a memoir of her personal story called Grief is a Verb. Megan is also launching a podcast soon, which she will tell us more about. Megan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It is totally delightful to be here. I'm so excited. So let's get right into it. If you can introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit more about you. What's your grief story so they have a perspective on where you're coming from today? Great. Thank you, Brooke. So like you said, I'm a trauma therapist. I've been in uh, practice for 20 years and in 2019, uh, well, in 2017, 2016, my dad was diagnosed with small cell cancer and he died in 2017. And his death was a straightforward death, if that makes sense. The Mm -hmm. kind of cancer that he had comes with a one year sort of time limit. And we, my family, my five brothers and sisters and I got to really participate at various levels. There was a strong element of denial going on for some people about how sick he was, but I really understood and knew. And my dad and I hadn't been close in my life, but you know, not, not a strange, just not similar people. And in, in the, in the losing of him, I spent a lot of time sort of just sort of gently in his space you know, Mm -hmm. letting him know he was loved and feeling kind of loved by him. It was incredibly difficult for my mom who they had been married for 50 years when he died. Uh, He had just turned 80. Yeah. A really long time. I mean, she was 19 when they married, he was older, 30. And, and then in 2019, when I was on vacation with my family at my mom's house, she had had a brief illness. She was sick, like with a stomach ache. She she and I had taken a trip even before I went to go visit her about a week before. And she was complaining of the stomach ache. And, you know, we were meant to be there for two, two and a half, three weeks and sort of midway through, she went to sleep and didn't wake up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't really know because we didn't have an autopsy or any of those things, what she died of, but likely it was this sort of longstanding, slow, illness. And it was completely and utterly traumatizing for me, which is, you know, I mean that not in the colloquial way. I mean it in like the technical, you know, trauma is a terrible event. We're all in trauma right now. Being traumatized means your central nervous system is totally overwhelmed and can't really process or function with the amount of terrible information that it's getting. And it's all housed inside your system. So I had PTSD that developed almost, you know, sort of immediately. And my PTSD was twofold. It was images of what it was like to see her dead and and spend time with her body, which I did do after she died. She was very religious. So I tried to pray the way that she would have wanted. Mm. And then I had a lot of like guilt thoughts, which I still actually battle, even though I got so sick that I ended up going inpatient at a, to an amazing trauma facility that's in Tennessee, where I send many of my clients. And when I got there and was checking in, they were like, oh, your name is associated with these like, you know, 20 people. Would you like us to send them your records? And I was like, please do not send my clients my records. But I got really amazing, intense, you know, therapy as it looks on television looks like come in and talk to me and tell me your problems, which is one form of therapy. But when your central nervous system is overwhelmed, it's much more body-centered uh, mm-hmm. therapy. And so talk therapy, we, we call that like top-down. You know, you're thinking about your feelings. Bottom-up therapy is like you are processing through your feelings. So I had a number of treatments that I actually do with my patients. One of them is called EMDR, which is where you reprocess a memory so that it doesn't have so much intensity by taking it where it's housed in the brain and using what they call bilateral stimulation. So you use these tapping techniques or these eye movement techniques to kind of like spread the image across your brain. And it's like the difference between orange juice concentrate and a glass of orange juice. So it's not so intense and you can, you can manage it. It's still painful and it still hurts and all that stuff. But most people in early grief talk about these things that they find really overwhelming And, you know, the hope is they ebb over time, 
but mine were not ebbing. They were, you know, I was getting worse. Mm -hmm. So it was an incredible thing for me, me to be able to say I have two master's degrees that I can look at and tons and tons of clinical training. So like, I wasn't confused about how sick I was. I knew, but then what it meant was I had to then go and also do the treatments. And I was in inpatient for three weeks, but generally it takes a long time to sort of regulate your system and your body so that you're not so overwhelmed by, Mm -hmm. by the feelings. So, so my mom died and I took six months off my job because my job is a trauma therapist. And I just could not like, could not for the life of me go and sit and hold other people's stories and sort of listen to their stories. And in that process of trying to sort of find myself and doing the treatment, I started writing there are one of the things that I do now is I write, I, I run a writer's workshop, which you mentioned. It's this free little workshop on my website. It's, it happens every four to six weeks. And it usually, it, it has anywhere between a few hundred and like just a cluster right now where this amazing group of 45 people. And I feel like everybody is like really good friends with each other. It just started back up. But part of what I am trying to help people with and and part of the reason I know to help people with it, and you and I just talked about this a second ago when I asked you about your cover and you said that water is important to you, you know, being able to change how you physically feel in your five senses Mm -hmm. is grieving. It's allowing the energy to move through your body. And most of my clients will come into my office and say, okay, I can't cry or I did cry. But like, other than that, what do I do to grieve? So on my Instagram right now, I have, and I've been doing it since the beginning of April, this thing that, you know, it says grieve is a verb. And it just gives a million examples. Like you're in a restaurant and you're ordering off a menu. Like if you don't like escargot, don't order that. If you don't like dancing or you're not, you're not going to draw, then that's not how you're going to grieve. But for a lot of people, like the one that I put up today is dancing, saying to someone, have a conscious thought in your mind or a memory of your lost person, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a person. You can have profound sense of loss that's connected to, you know, a business closing or a divorce, but bring that into your consciousness and then dance, pick a Mm -hmm. song that matches that and then dance. That's actually grieving. I had a client several years ago who he never cried And he kept saying, I didn't grieve my mom's death. He spent a hundred hours folding up every article of her clothing, making sure it went to people for whom it would be meaningful. And I really had to help him understand that like that precious act of taking her important things and and seeing them home to other people is grieving. Mm -hmm. But, But in my experience, the general population doesn't really know that. And oddly, even though I taught that, I don't think I had, I don't think I embodied it until I had my own experience. The metaphor that I often use is like, I can tell you what it's like to live in the mountains in France, but until you go there, you don't know what it smells like. You don't know what the earth feels like. And I think profound grief is a lot like that, which is, you know, you know, like now we speak French, native French, like that's just sort of how it works. Yeah. And that's something I've talked about a lot of like, you don't know until you do it. And I had this like interesting reconciliation of like, cause I had people in my family who had lost parents, siblings, what have you. And I had thought I did a good job being supportive. And then I was like, Oh, I didn't know. Like, I didn't yeah. know what this feels like. And to give yourself the grace of like, that's okay. And I think that that's something really important for people to remember and for the people listening who have not lost someone super close to them or haven't gone through a big grieving process to understand that like the reason no one knows what to say is because you don't know until you do it. But I do want to go back um, to something you said about holding grief in your body, because that is something I really found in my grieving process and to explain it to people I think they're like all right like sure (laughs) and but would love your because you have all of this training of just like what is actually happening in our bodies because it was kind of confusing to me 
frankly. Yeah. That's such a, oh God, Brooke, that's such a great, it's a great question. So I, I'll give you like a sort of flyover broad view and just pepper me with questions because I could talk Perfect. about this all day. Okay. But, but for people who are listening to us who are interested in this, there's a book that's still on the New York Times bestseller list by a man named Bessel van der Kolk, who's sort of the the guru in this. And part of the reason is he learned this out of his own curiosity working with traumatized patients. And he uses brain imaging to look at how people's brains are firing. And so it's like for a long time, we were like, oh, we think this is happening. And Bessel really came in with science and was like, I can show you that it's happening. Mm -hmm. So there's two pieces that might be useful to hear. So one is sort of in the Eastern medicine. So think more like Chinese medicine, you know, Chinese medicine has all this yin and yang, like you don't eat hot and cold together. You're always trying to sort of balance. And so if we think about it from a Chinese medicine standpoint, you have a new mother load of energy inside your body that needs to find a place of rest. And until it does that, and some of that will reside inside of you because you will carry your grief forever because it is your loss. And some of that you need to put back down onto the earth where all the atoms and the energy go, right? So mm -hmm. that's sort of the Eastern medicine element of it. And, and in both, you know, in that model, what we know is people grieve and they survive it the process of learning to carry the grief. And that's how I think about it. I think about it as like someone handed you this little grief baby and you've got to grow the forearms to carry it. You know, it's work. It's literally just like trying to train for a triathlon. Like you kind, your body can get injured in the process of it. Well, the Eastern medicine maps out things like the back and the feet and the hands. So if you've ever gone and gotten acupuncture, they can tell you, oh, your gallbladder must be stuck or, and I love all those modalities and treatments. I love Reiki. I mean, if, you know, anything that is soothing, even if I don't understand it, I'm, I'm, let's do it. Let's try it. Totally. So I'm yeah. always advocating that stuff. Yin yoga is a type of yoga where you hold a pose for a really long time and the stretch goes into the fascia. And we believe the fascia is where some of the energy for grief happens. So that's a yoga that looks like a whole bunch of old ladies stretching, but they're stretching and weeping because that kind of stretching allows the tension into the floor. You don't have to carry it. Mm. So, you know, for me, actually, I have a lower back glitch. It's been there since I was 18. I had a weakness in my back from having a herniated disc from being a runner. And now that's the part of my body that holds grief. So when I do not attend to the energy and I will see some flashes of it, like I'll feel it, my back will go out like an accordion. And when my mom died, that is what happened. I was still trying to move forward. And I threw my back out so badly that like, I couldn't get, I was in the basement. I actually went down to the basement to try to do yoga. And I threw it out so badly that like, I couldn't get up for a couple of days. Wow. And, and it wasn't the first, I th also threw it out really terribly when my dad died, but with my mom, it was worse. And I, you know, that's how I come to think about it is like, you know, almost like a kid who throws a temper tantrum and to get your attention. And what I would say is my back is my thing, but I have treated people who have migraines, ocular migraines, and, you know, complete full head migraines. I've had people who get canker sores. I've had people who have, I have a woman who I, they think she has like stress-induced cystic breasts. So like she gets lumps in her breasts and then all of a sudden she's terrified that she, you know, it's very common for people who've had significant loss to be terrified either that they're dying or someone else is going to die. Mm -hmm. And so again, some of that energy manifests itself in people having racing hearts. It's really common to have panic attacks. But the central nervous system is this super highway that goes from the base of your, the vagus nerve goes from the base of like back by the, your upper part of your butt, all the way up to the front of your forehead. Mm -hmm. So there is a communication system going on at all times. It's generating your hormones. So things, hormones that are there to tell you that you feel satisfied and that you're okay and safe, you know, those messages are being passed up and down. And there's a, a theory, which is called polyvagal theory. And polyvagal theory is essentially the right side of your brain is the activation side of your brain. So when you're can't sleep and you're feeling anxious and you're, you know, 
we know that the right side of the brain is overactive. When you that's are in me. That, that's me. Right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of us. And then and then there's the other side, which is so that's your sympathetic nervous system. That's the activation side. And then the other side of your brain, I mean, literally the other side of your brain is your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the one that helps you calm down. And that vagus nerve actually develops at about four months, which is when babies start to cry it out. So the vagus nerve is this system that when you get too activated, like a nuclear reactor, it clicks the vagus nerve on and suddenly you're so tired, you sleep for three days. And what it's trying to do is help regulate that energy that's inside your body that isn't quite finding a place to land. And if it lands wrong, it's going to knock your back out. Uh And, you know, it generates, it also generates all the stuff in your esophagus, which you know, is how we integrate food into our body. So, so like it's easy for our system to get really screwed up. And what generally happens in trauma with the brain is that at the very back of your neck mm-hmm. where the brain stem begins, it is the reptilian brain connected to the limbic system. The reptilian brain is like a lizard and all that lizard can do is and you've seen lizards do this, run, stay still. So fight, flight, freeze. That's it. That's all I can do. And that part of the brain is activated by the amygdala, which is a small little, like it kind of looks like a walnut. Mm-hmm. And when you have a traumatic event, particularly when it's startling or shocking, it inflates and it inflates because it is intentionally trying to keep the energy, the oxygen from moving to the front of your brain. It wants to keep everything back here so that you will just instinctively and reflexively respond. So if a bear comes into your living room, your amygdala responds in, in, in terror. It blocks off any other thoughts. You're going to, you know, we don't want to have a memory of a happy bear come in. It cuts off a lot of the blood flow to like your stomach and your extremities. Cause like, we don't want to waste any energy which is why some people will throw up when they get bad news. It's why they have diarrhea when they get bad news. It's because the system is like, shut it down. We need all of our energy to, we might need to run away from this bear really fast. Mm -hmm. And there's one more that isn't fight, flight, or freeze. And it's befriend, which is another way that sometimes the, the system works to try to help you feel like you are safer. But in general, when the amygdala is enlarged, we are not doing good critical thinking. And so many of the folks in my writer's group actually have written stories about making big mistakes at work, not being able to hold memories from the time of the loss is a really big one. The three o'clock wake up that happens for almost everybody, and that can go on for years and years. So, and these are kind of things, again, like when you live in France, the mountains of France of grief, like you talk to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, no, me too. But most people don't understand that the reason that that's happening is because when your amygdala enlarged, it went off like a gong and the limbic system, which is right there. And it, it, your thalamus, your hypothalamus, like all those things are now reverberating and they're not working very well. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we do in grief work and body work is that we, we try to ground that energy so that it doesn't continue to ring like a bell, that the bell doesn't continue to get rung. And that's something that people will say is like, oh my God, I'm irritable all the time. This friend used to like a little annoy me. And now I just can't stand a thing that she says, or like I used to be able to put up, but I'm angry all the time, you know? And part of that is you have hormones that are trying to cause that bell to stop ringing. And so in that process, it's trying to soothe the system. So people who are anxious, and this is the thing that always, I mean, I probably said this to you, you know, in pop culture, when you open a magazine or you hear the Today Show do a stint on grief, they behave as though when you're grieving, your symptoms are the same, that you and I both are, you know, anxious when really there's the high level energy folks and you were nodding. So that's you who are like, oh my God, I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to move. I'm going to start a new job. I'm going to divorce my husband. And then there's the low energy folks who are like, I'm never getting out of bed. Mm -hmm. I'm never getting out of bed. I'm not going to do anything anymore. It doesn't matter. I'm not paying bills. 
And both are totally reasonable responses. You don't control them. I have a question. Is it possible to do both based on where you are in your grieving cycle? Because while my dad was sick, I was very high energy and I was like, okay, we're organizing this, we're doing this. And I was living by my to-do list. And then as soon as he died, I was like, I could not get out of bed. The only thing I could do was I went to work out. I was double workout. I was walking all the time because that was the only thing like movement was the only thing I could do. And then I, someone in my family was like, when are you going to go back to work? And I was like, like, absolutely not. And because like my brain, like I can't even talk to more than one person at a time. And so is that possible that be? Yes, actually. And so what you're describing, so, so thank you so much for the question, because it's a perfect question. There are generally people sort of tend towards anxiety or tend towards depression in their lives. Uh So they're either more right-brained or left-brained in general. That doesn't necessarily hold in grief. So your brain can get so shaken up that even though you're normally somebody who would like attack a problem, you just don't care about anything. So there's that piece. But I think the piece you're talking about is we have, you know, when you are first in that, those early days, you're in that fight, flight, flee sort of response for an extended period of time. And that is actually a lot like being a a war veteran. Like you're in the foxhole and you're looking for days on end to make sure that somebody's not coming to attack you and your troops. That your body is sending adrenaline. I mean, all kinds of Mm -hmm. naturally made chemicals to keep you in this state of high alert. The minute you don't have to do that anymore, it's like the road crew comes, picks up the cones, closes the doors and is like, okay. And then all of a sudden the adrenaline stops, the cortisol levels shift. I mean, what's relatable for some people is that if they went to college and they studied for exams and they come home, they immediately sleep for 48 hours, 72 hours, and they get sick. That's a small version of what you and I are talking about. And, but generally when people are in that high state of alert, they're planning the funeral, they're talking to people, they're navigating. There is this like adrenaline that almost, I mean, some people have reported, like, it feels good. They're like a little high from it. That will stop. Your body is like, okay, you don't need this anymore. And then you can end up not getting out of bed for days and days. And, and again, from the Chinese medicine standpoint, you know, you were really high. So then you end up really low. And then hopefully we get somewhere to the middle, which is more like the integration of grief. What sounds really great about your instincts is that you knew to move your body. Because again, we can't just leave this energy inside our body unattended. Right, right. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll go places and, and create, create a belief for us. Like since my dad died, I don't go outside or I don't move or I don't, that we don't want. So I have a couple of questions. This is fascinating. I am loving this conversation. This is so interesting. And I think because like for me, and I think for some listeners, you feel so lost when you're grieving because you're like, what the hell is happening to me? And you want to go, I'm doing air quotes, back to normal. And it's just like, well, no, there's all of this stuff now. A recent guest equated grief to like how you deal with a new baby. Like you just have to shift. Totally. Yeah. And I thought that was a great metaphor. So something that happened to me and has happened to a lot of people I know is that grief and anxiety, which I'm definitely more like anxiety prone. And this is just like, I want to know about this because this happens to me all the time. Like, but specifically when my dad was sick, I like completely lost my appetite. Yeah. And I know people who that's happened to, but I also, when you said some people throw up, like I have yeah. someone I'm really close to who every time she gets bad news, she throws up and, yeah. or every time she's nervous or even really excited, like yeah. <laughs> she throws up. Yeah. And, but can you talk a little bit about, cause just, I know a couple of people who this has affected who are close to me and myself included of why it affects your appetite and like the feeling of like my stomach drops. Like it's not even like, Oh, I'm not hungry. It's like my stomach drops. And then 
I don't want to eat anything. And I'm just like, nah. like, why does that happen? Like what is yeah, going so, on? Hormonally? So literally inside your brain, you have, and I won't get too technical. I'm just going to call them, you know, descriptors. You have things like words called a hippocampus and a thalamus and a hypothalamus. And they literally secrete all of the chemicals that you need to send your body the messages to get hungry. Ghrelin is one of the, one of the things and to tell you when you've had enough to eat, because there are just as many people who just eat me meat. They don't have a, they used to have a stop mechanism, but they put on, you know, 70 pounds after their person dies. So when, when you have that traumatic event and the gong rings in the back of your head, your brain is not sending. It's like, it's like the current mail system. The messages are not getting where they need (laughs) to go. Yeah. So there's the instinctive one that I said, where people like they throw up in the moment, something happens and they throw up in the moment. That's more like an evolutionary response where we empty the stomach so that it stops digesting Mm -hmm. so that the energy that you would use to digest is not being used, but it's not being used so that like for people, there are a lot of people who would not be able to run if their stomach was full. Well, the body just voids everything in the stomach so that now if you need to go, you can go. Oh my God, this is so interesting. Yeah, so that's that's more of a like fight, flight, freeze response, right? And, And there's a lot of, particularly with the freeze response, and this is in trauma, but it's also in grief. You know, when you... Like I remember when my grandfather died and I, um, my father told me my grandfather died. My very first thought was, oh my God, well, who's going to take me to high school on the first day of school? If that's when his funeral is, I mean, it was this totally crappy, you know, 14 year old thought, but also then I like went and made a sandwich wrong. And I had a lot of shame about that as a kid, which was like, why did I act so terribly? And part of the reason I like to talk to people about what's going on with their brain is you were not doing anything with intention. You know, it's not just this terrible thing happened. It's this terrible thing happened. And the way that you are filtering the information is with a system that is not being updated quickly or efficiently wires are getting crossed. Mm -hmm. So the anxiety element of things, there's another kind of therapy, which is this lovely man, Richard Swartz, which is if you've seen the movie Inside Out, it's IFS therapy, internal internal family systems therapy, which isn't the greatest name for what it is. But basically what it says is we have a myriad of ways to navigate the world that you could come in and tell me bad news and I could greet you with humor. Well, that's going to suck for somebody. You could come in and give me bad news and I could respond with rage. You could come in and give me bad news and I could run away. And I don't always have control over who greets you at the door. Mm. And in this type of therapy, we call this parts. If you go into my Instagram, you'll see that I've just asked people in a writing workshop, I, I say it's who's your bus driver. And you're not always in charge of who's driving the bus. And when anxiety is driving the bus, he is usually, or mine is a man in my mind, he's usually driving the bus in service of other parts that he he thinks can't handle it. Does that make sense? I know, I can see your face. I want to talk to you offline about this because I do this all the time. (laughs) Um, So so when people are telling me, Claire Bidwell-Smith, who talks a lot about grief and loss, she wrote a whole book about anxiety as being sort of this other stage of grief, which drives me crazy because the grief stages are not a thing. I, I don't think so either. Thank you. It's not, I mean, there, there is no, there's no science behind it. It's not how it was intended. I I like sort of refuse to talk. Wasn't it it was for the people experiencing like a diagnosis that they were going to die. Right. It's not for the, uh, the uh, survivor people. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I never had any bargaining. I never was like, Oh God, if you just bring my dad back from the dead, but people are waiting for those stages. There are a lot of other grief theories that are helpful. That one is not, but Claire wrote a book, which is called Anxiety as the Final Stage of Grief, which is, you know, I was not anxious after my, after my parents died. In fact, if anything, my anxiety, I, I just am like, does anything ever even really matter? Who cares? You know, mm. when COVID hit, I was only a couple of months out of coming back to work And my family and I decided to like drive across the country. Like, why not? You know, not because we were trying to get COVID. We were very careful, but people who were like, oh, you know, we need to make sure that our kids stay in school. I was like, whatever, you know, 
this is going to be kind of a shit show. So who cares? And that is not my general MO. My general MO is to be like, I'm worried about this. And then when I stop worrying about that, I worry about this and I stop worrying about that. And so anxiety with grief, what we in therapy, what we ask is what is, what is it in service of? And so meaning, meaning it's almost like a sleight of hand. It's a magician's trick. If the anxiety were to step to the side, who is he protecting? What's behind him? And it's usually something much more vulnerable. And the anxiety believes if I, if I don't do my job here, then poor Brooke is going to be overwhelmed by whatever this other feeling is. And generally in grief, that other feeling is sorrow, it's sadness. And so part of the reason I think it's so important to teach people how to grieve is, you know, most of us don't die from grief. I'm not saying that there aren't things like broken heart syndrome and stuff like that. You know, grief can make us very ill. But for the most part, we all become successful grievers. And I said this to you when we first talked, the thing that drove me the craziest when, particularly when my dad died, is people kept using this phrase. Do you feel like you're back to yourself? I hate, I like you're back to yourself. I mean, I think every griever has a phrase that really makes them, you know, just want to go postal. But what I described, because, you know, I have three kids when my daughter was born, you know, I was pregnant with her for all the millions of months that you're pregnant. I was not a mother in my mind until that baby came out and was put in my arms. I think other women may feel that they're a mother the minute that they conceive. But to me, Lucy was mine to care for the rest of my life, the minute she was born. Mm -hmm. And nobody said to me, and it's really traumatic. Giving birth is like terrible. It's terrible. And, and, and mine was safe and I was safe and it, you know, we had lots of support and it's still scary as hell. No one ever said to me, do you feel like you're back to yourself? What everyone said to me was like, oh my God, it's the worst. Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you okay? I, there were like multiple groups in my community that I could go to as a new mom. Uh We were not teaching my nine month old music class. That music class was to have new moms feel supported in the community. In my mind, grief is exactly the same. You have less preparation. It's a totally overwhelming event, but it, I am a mother now for the rest of my life. I will never not be a mom. Yeah. So do you think that I love this analogy? The reason that people are like, are you back to normal? And I've been thinking about this a lot and talking about this on recent episodes that that in my mind with zero psychological training, mind you, is coming from a place of they want it to be back to normal and they want you to be back to normal because grief does shift you. You're a different person. I'm very much of the belief, like you have a new normal, which it sounds like you are too. So do you think that, where does that come from? That ask from that other those other people. I think, I think part of, partly it's cultural. There's an, another grief researcher, Hope Edelman, who wrote a beautiful book called After Grief. And she talks about all these other cultures that do it differently. You know, I think part of it is whatever, you know, we have pathologized grief. The problem isn't that this terrible thing happened. The problem is that you're having a problem with it. So can you take that to your therapist for one hour and do that behind a closed door and then come back out and button your shirt and put your lipstick on and like go back to work. And that model doesn't really work for anything. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. work for anything that is a pathology. You know, if you got cancer or if you went through a breakup or if you, the idea that you're supposed to contain that part of your life into like one therapy hour or one person that you talk to just literally does not work at all. And I do think some of it is that we don't have good grief education in general. Like, yes, it's true. You can't know the mountains in France till you go to France, but like you can study France. You can know some things about the cultures there. And, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot, you know, my daughter is 13, but when she was 11, she came home with this piece of paper that was like, mom, I got to take health class. Like, I do not want to take it. And I was like, and she's sort of young for her age. And I was like, I hear you sister. That's the worst, but also you have to take this class because you need to get the information. Cause if you don't, it will be so much worse. Like well, you need to get the information before you need it. Is what right. I really exactly. Why wouldn't you teach a child about their developing bodies so that like when things are changing, they're not horrified. 
when they know that it's sort of normal, it is stunning to me that we don't have a mandatory college education weekend workshop that says, here's what you need to know. Because, you know, again, it kills me when people come into my office and they're like, Megan, these are the symptoms that I'm having. And I think I'm going crazy. And what I say is that's just like literally run of the mill grief. Like that's not even interesting. Like you don't even need to pay me money. That's just like, (laughs) that's just run of the mill grief. (laughs) And they don't know that, that, you know, the fact that your brain interrupts your sleep and you have a standard like three to 5 a.m. wake up and that can go on for years. I had that. Yeah. When someone tells, you know, when an expert says, no, 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 babe, that's just normal. You know, there's the book that you get when you're pregnant. That's like, here are all the crazy ass things that are going to happen to your body. One of them is a brown stripe might go from like your pelvic area all the way up to your, to your breasts, like across your stomach. Like, thank God somebody told me that. Cause that was really freaky to have happen <laughs> to my body, but we don't do the same in grief. And so because people are not well-educated, it's just like anything else. Like if I don't know what that's about, I, I mean, truly like think about my son yesterday participated in a holy activity for where they throw chalk at each other as part of the Muslim events that are happening right now. And I, you know, he, we don't know anything about that. That was like an invitation from another culture for people to educate us on something. And I feel like with grief, you know, we're all headed in the same direction. It is wild that what we say is you have to reinvent this for yourself every time, instead of every doctor's office has a referral for a grief group, every hospital's running one, you know, we shouldn't have to pay a ton of money to a grief counselor. There should just be available, you know, just as a normal process, there should be so much more grief leave in, you know, offices because, these folks are going to, we make ourselves worse when there isn't room to do the grieving that we need to grieve. And again, it might be that you're going to write for a while. It might be, you're going to dance for a while. It might be that you're going to cry for a while, but it is going to be a while. Yeah. And so that I do think that part of the reason that we approach it, the way that we approach it is cultural and American. And we don't want to know about anything that isn't pretty and shiny And I think that's going to, we'll see with all the new grievers on account of COVID, we'll see if that culture begins to change because I don't know that we're going to have a choice with the number of people who are going to need real concrete education and support. But I also think a lot of it is just really well-meaning people avoiding things that make them uncomfortable. And so what I, what I often say to people, you know, they're people will come, therapists will say to me like, oh my God, my neighbor, her mother died. I don't know what to say. And again, on my Instagram, I have these like, ask these six questions. The questions are like, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Do you have a faith base that's helping you right now? Is there anyone that's driving you crazy? Is there anyone that's helping? And if somebody doesn't want to talk to you, they won't, but they will understand that you are trying to like scooch over and let them sit down with their grief, mm, that you're not yeah. blocking them on the subway by spreading your legs and taking up more seats than you should. You know, you're saying you can sit here if you want to, you don't have to, I'll respect that. But when we don't feel confident, we're like, Oh, I don't want to call them. I don't want to make them feel bad. And the analogy that I use with people is like, you know, what else is really awkward? Your first kiss. So awkward. So crazy. Like no 12 year old ever so had the most romantic yeah. kiss. But we don't say to people, you know, we don't say, oh, well, it's awkward. Why don't you skip it? It's awkward. So don't call them. What we say is like, it's awkward. It's terrible. It's totally worth it. And I feel that way in grief also, which is like when people can move past it and say how it really is, there is so much me too that can be had. There's so much compassion because we are, we're, we are able to give each other so much support, even when you don't know even when you haven't lost your dad, there is so much love and support. You just kind of have to get over that hump. And I really do think in the grief education part, grievers also have the responsibility of saying to someone that doesn't work what you're doing and saying, you have to stop it. That that boundaries as a part of the class would be important saying to someone, You're, you know, if someone is coming to you and they are trying to give you something because you said you're thirsty and they believe you're thirsty and they're giving you a cup of sand, 
don't drink it. Hand it back and say, I'm so sorry. I don't think you meant to give me this cup of sand. Do you have anything else? And so that's, you know, I do that. My mom was really religious and her friends are always like, oh, she's up there with Jesus and your dad in heaven. And I just don't believe in heaven. Like, God, I wish I could. I, I love the idea of it, but it's not real for me. Mm-hmm. And so what I say is, you know what? And, and in my worst and most painful place, what I would say is I feel really jealous that that makes you feel better, but it doesn't make me feel better. Do you have anything else you can offer? And generally people would stumble and I'd say, I love stories about my mom that I haven't heard before. And then they would find them. I think that's really hard. I mean, I'm a grief therapist, right? Like that, that's pretty high level skill to expect someone to do and be able to sort of stay. What we generally do is we listen to what they say. It's terrible. And then we never speak to them again. And we say, okay, thanks. And I had this thing and like listeners have heard me talk about this a little bit and you and I have talked before, but like, I'm pretty blunt and like, I don't really have a lot of patience for nonsense and people so well-meaning. I'm so sorry. Be like me too. Like, and they'd just be like, uh, (laughs) like they were like, oh, I thought that's what I was supposed to say. Like, and it's just like people may his memory be a blessing and like what I wanted and like different people feel differently. Like I have friends who lost parents who are like, no, what else are people supposed to say to me besides I'm sorry, but people would say things to me and I would just be like, I want you to say that sounds so terrible. Yeah. And people have really mixed feelings. I'm like, I can't imagine. Like I, yeah. if people say that to me, I'm like, that's fine. But I know people who yeah. and I guess on the show be like, don't ever say that to me. And yeah. so I do want to respect the fact that the people who are trying to come in and comfort you, it's like a minefield because everyone handles this differently. Exactly. But I do think that generally everyone can kind of level up how they approach. But I think, I mean, I think the reason we have such trouble with it is we make it into this big taboo thing, which my little sister is really funny. I I had a miscarriage years ago and she called and she was like, you know, I thought maybe I shouldn't call you because that would upset you. And then I just thought like, how much more upset could you get? So then I decided to call you. And I love that. Like I am a person where go close. Like if I don't want you here, I'll tell you. But there are many people that are like, don't ring my doorbell. Don't drop off flowers. I don't want that. So what I would say is it's like having someone over for dinner. You know, you check and you're like, do you have any food allergies? Is there anything you don't eat? Is there like religious practice that you, you know, do you pray before your meal? Like, it's not that you're supposed to get it all right. You know, there are a lot of lists, like every one of those lists, every book that's out there is like, don't say this. And to me, that just scares the shit out of someone who's trying to approach us What I say is find what's authentic to you. You know, I had a friend one time and she was like practically crying and she's like, I know I need to bring this person food, but I don't, I'm not a good cook. And I was like, why should you learn to become a cook in order to support someone that you love who had a loss? Like, what, what do you normally do? And she's an amazing florist. And she was like, you know, I'm going to go over and I'm going to bring them flowers, even if they have flowers. And I was like, even if they have flowers, they won't be as beautiful as yours, but being able to sort of call on what is authentic to you right? Like, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm a, I I have a lot of kids. So I'm like, I'll take your kids. Like, I won't even notice they're there. Let's throw them in the car. Yeah. But the notion that like, you can't, you know, there's a list. And on one of those things that says like, do not say anything about your loss to someone who's just lost a person, like don't hijack. And I understand the sentiment behind it. And I, what I imagine is the person who wrote that felt that way a lot. But just as many people that I know love hearing, oh my God, you know how I feel when you tell me I also lost my dad, you know, when I was whatever. That to me is like the deepest like level of compassion. And so what I tell people is you're going to have to bang around with it for a minute. And again, like, just like making out for the first time, like the concept of sort of, you know, is this okay? am I doing this right for you? Would you like something else? And so one of the questions I ask grievers, you know, I ask like, is there a person that has like really surprised you with how well they have shown up? Mm. And really what I'm asking is what did they do? Cause I want to do that too. And you know what? Everybody always says, yes. Oh my God. You know what? Yes. 
my old roommate from college, I didn't talk to her in years. And like, she sent me these things. And, and I know that's true because I had that experience too. There were people where I was like, wow, how did they know how to do this? People who sent me beautiful books, people who, you know, I had one friend who sent me like a pair of pink suede sneakers and the card said something like, you know, shoes are always good. And like, I love, I don't even wear them that often. I just love that they exist Yeah, because it was so true to her. So that's the, you know, I think we want there to be some sort of formula. And the reason that we want there to be a formula is just like when we're trying to diet or we're trying to, you know, learn another language, like we would like some, we would like an external support to tell us how to do something hard. And in reality, everybody always has to figure out on their own how you do something hard. You can borrow from other experiences, but you got to figure it out. Yeah, completely. That is a really great thing to point out because we want things to be easy. Like, and grief is hard. And so that's why the grievers, like, we don't know. And it's like, okay, when is this going to be over? Like this, it's not fun at all. And then like the people who are coming in to be of support, that's really hard to do. And it's not fun to be in that position to like really show up. Like that is hard also. It it isn't fun, but it can be so unbelievably intimate, unbelievably connecting. And so that's the part, like when people are like, well, it's really awkward and I don't want to make it awkward. That's the word I hear a lot. And I'm like, what is with the awkward? A lot, like standing in line in the post office can be awkward. Like we do, we can do this. A lot of sort of how I, how I say to people, like, you know, I don't want you to miss that magic moment of being able to really connect with someone Mm -hmm. that you care about simply because you don't know at this moment exactly how to do it right. You Mm -hmm. know, like, like go close, step back, give grace. Like all of that is, is important. And what I know from grievers is that when they are not directly approached, they are guessing how people feel about them. And a lot of what they guess, and I know it's wrong, but a lot of what they guess is that people are critical, don't want to be around them, aren't thinking about them, forgot about them. And I know it's wrong because I often see like both sides of stories, but that's what they're left with. Like when you mm-hmm. don't try and approach and allow yourself to be awkward, that is the message that you don't care enough about them. And often people are like, oh my God, that is the opposite. I've said prayers for them every day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I try to encourage people to do is like, well, at least just text them that Yeah. every day I wake up and say a prayer for you. I mean, the miscarriage that I, that I referenced from a million years ago, it was sort of, it was sudden. And my husband and I had to like, you know, race the hospital. And I will never forget that the woman who, who was his assistant sent a text that said, we all went to lunch at the cathedral and said prayers for you. And like, I don't even really believe in prayers, but I was like, that is the most touching thing that they were holding me in their heart in that moment. Yeah. And what grievers end up feeling is my friend, Wendy, who I normally see her every week. She hasn't called me because she doesn't care about me anymore because my cousin died. That's not what's going on with Wendy. Mm-hmm. Wendy just doesn't know how to show up. And so I'm sort of like that parent at the door of the eighth grade dance, which is like, just push them in, like, just go in. Yeah. You know, you're, you're go in and try. Well, and I do think that the I appreciated more, and this might be hindsight because, you know, your brain does all these funny things based on what would happen in the moment versus how you remember things, you know, better than me. But like, I, I remember the people who didn't show up. I remember the people who really showed up and I very distinctly remember friends a month, two months after being like, I didn't know what to say to you and I didn't want to do it wrong. And so they didn't say anything. And it's really interesting because I recorded with someone yesterday who was so hurt and upset that their three best friends didn't say anything and ended up writing them a note of, hey, by the way, you didn't show up for me. And that was really hurtful. But when you have the opportunity, this is not how you do it. Yeah. And so, but it really deeply, I think, affects you of whether it's touching or hurt, 
like of how people show up? You know, the other thing that I keep, that I have said a million times is like just resource. Like if you can't ask your best friend because she is reeling because her husband just died, ask her sister, ask her mother, like resource, make some calls. You know, when my mom died, I'm lucky enough to have a best friend who's been my best friend since I was 10 years old. And she and another incredibly dear best friend, I sort of feel like the universe gave me the grace of having them literally both on hand, which was not typical. They would not normally have been there. But, you know, she came over while we were receiving people and writing obituaries. And she said to me, where's your mother's medical file? And I was like, it's over there. And then I didn't think about it again. And later she said, I called all her doctors and told them she died. Wow. I mean, that still chokes me up because those are terrible, terrible, terrible phone calls to make. Mm-hmm. And she got that piece of information by calling someone whose mother had died and said, what can I do? And the friend said, this was the worst part for me. She didn't even invent that in her head. I mean, this is the woman who knows me the most, Yeah, but truly it was such to not have to make those 40 phone calls. Well, I still have to call like the Met and MoMA are like, why haven't you renewed? And I call membership and I'm like, he's dead. Please take him off his mailing list. Like, Mm And I love, I'm crying. Like I love. I know it's not beautiful. It was so beautiful. So, I mean, it was just, it was so, it was, it was such an act of grace. And, and what I felt was the love of her asking, like when people say, and, and I've said to people like, I'll be a resource. I'll help you guess. We'll pick from a menu of things that might work. And people do that. They call and they say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? And I don't know right or wrong, but I will say, oh, you know, that could work or, you know, they might hate it. But that particular, you know, she called a friend, she checked with someone and she did this and I'll just, I'll never, I mean, I do think every one of us has someone who did something and by using that question, I just think questions are the best way to go by using that question. Tell me the person who did the thing that was so surprisingly helpful And then now I have a piece of information that like, it would be really helpful to you to have somebody do. I mean, this is the same friend who like, when she came to my baby shower, she brought cards that had everybody's address is already on them and my address on the back. So it was like, all I had to say was like, dear, you know, dear Tara, thank you for the pacifier. And then I could send them like at the end of the baby shower, she's a very thoughtful person, but you don't even need to be that thoughtful. And I think that's what happens is grievers feel like I need to invent this wheel because no one has ever done this before. It feels so alone. This is the other thing. Like, I love that you said that you tell the truth. Like I am no bullshit all the time. When people say to me, you're not alone. I am like, yes, I am. You did not Mm -hmm. lose my mother. I know you love me, but you are standing while I am running this marathon. The most you can do is hand me a cup of water. And that is true, even though I have five brothers and sisters, they all lost, you know, both of our different relationship. You do it all by yourself. And from like French existentialism, like that is like, that is the truth. And so the cave that you have to go through in order to acclimate and carry the grief for the rest of your life is yours to scramble through. But that doesn't mean you can't phone a friend. That doesn't mean you can't learn from someone else's experience. And the same goes for grievers. You know, like if my husband got cancer, the hospital that's near me has like two different groups, two different nights that are like spouses, you know, caretakers of people dying of cancer. They have no grief groups. There's no grief groups at those hospitals. But there are, you know, how are you going to manage it? And so it's it's both people. The griever themselves have to learn this incredibly hard thing. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are connected have to figure out how do I become a support for you? And I think the idea that that's all supposed to be like, we read a book, we figure it out, graceful. You know, one of the other things that just killed me, Julia Samuel who has a great podcast that is really clinical, which I bet you would love. She's a grief specialist, a a thanologist in the UK. And she wrote a book called Grief Works, which is a series of vignettes, clinical vignettes about people that she 
treated through their grief. And I came home one night, I don't know where I was. I came home and got into bed and my husband was just reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? And he was like, I just thought it could be helpful for me to know a little bit more about what this was like for you. And so like, even that, right. Like someone here, right. I can see your face. Like that's so touching. If somebody said to me, I called your sister because I wanted to know how to help you. Or I read a book because I wanted to be able to show up for you. The effort grade there is really high, even if the actual activity sucks. <laughs> intent, right? Like the intent matters so much. Yeah. And when people are silent, we don't know how you feel or what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And there are so many, you know, there are so many people who lose friendships and grief. And I say two things about this. One is you will. That's not your fault. That's not their fault. You also lose friends when you switch jobs. You also lose friends when you have a baby. You also lose friends when you get your first boyfriend. Like that happens. It doesn't mean that they're terrible people. It means that you are going through a huge life stage event and not everybody's going to make it. But also it is an opportunity for friendships to deepen, for relationships to deepen in these really, you know, I have a number of clients who like were kind of vaguely dating someone when something really terrible happened. And that goes one of two ways. They never called that person again, or somehow that relationship became a lasting, meaningful relationship in a way that probably it wouldn't have if we didn't have to lean on each other for this kind of support. And that's the part where I feel like it's a damn shame when people are like, I don't have the skill set, so I have to walk away. You miss the opportunity for the intimacy around it and Mm -hmm. everyone's going to need it. You know, you're either providing it or receiving it. You're not going to get through life, not not being on one side or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. We've been talking for an hour. So we're going to talk about the writer's workshop and I want to hear about your book and I want to talk to you all the time. I love this. We're going to talk all the time. Um, Well, you're going to come on my podcast. So we're going to talk again. So the writer's workshop. So I am across social media generally as grief is my side hustle. So if you put that into your Googles, you should get my website and the website generally has every, everything there. Instagram scrolls at the bottom and the Instagram is like pictures of my kids, plants that I've killed and things that have to do with grief and loss every day. I'm just like constantly living my life on the internet which is so crazy because before my mom died, I literally had no internet presence at all. There's a blog that I write that started after my mom died that I started just because I was really lonely and I needed people to sort of respond. Mm-hmm. So there's a blog and there's tons of blog posts. I don't know, there's like 80, more than that maybe. And some of them are vignettes and stories about my life. And some of them are clinical stuff like you and I have been talking about today. Yeah. And the writer's workshop, you can join on Grief Is My Side Hustle page. And it, it we're in week two, I think, with the group that I'm in right now. And it's a series of prompts. So today was the one about your grief entourage. Like who are the, who are the parts of you that show up and help you manage grief and who drives the bus most often and They're really just prompts to get you thinking about grief in various ways. And I think some of them, people are like, oh my God, I love that one. And others, they don't write on it, but also the community communicates with each other, which is really beautiful. They support each other, which is just lovely. So the right, that's the writer's workshop. And also there's a space on there. There are some people who are writers. So there's the writing for the process, kind of like, you know, dancing it out is about the energy in your body, in your grief. That's not going to make you a professional dancer, but some people are professional dancers. So there are writers who are also in the group who are wanting to write and create a project. And so people can also contact me for that. And Mm -hmm. I do a little bit of coaching for people that are writing and the book that I'm writing. So I I'm actually in the middle of two different, one is further along than the other. I'm writing a memoir. I'm there's a, a woman with an incredible podcast called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Zibby Owens. She's just like changing all of the face of literature at the moment. She is a writer and lost a mother-in-law and a grandmother-in-law to COVID. And so grief has really been, and, and also many friends in 9-11, grief has always been right at the top of her list. She started a writer's fellowship. And so there's four of us right now who are writing for her with an editor, our memoirs. Mm -hmm. So we had a meeting yesterday, which is really, you know, 
exciting and incredibly hard. I was not really a writer before all of this started. So it's totally fun and exciting. And then the second book that I'm writing, which is I'm writing on my own, is a clinical book like what we're talking about, which sounds an awful lot like the conversation that we're having right now, oh which God, is really just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you know, I love, I love the name of this podcast, Grief Coach, because I love the idea of coaching because really coaching is just letting somebody know that you believe that they can do it. And most of us, our first instinct about this is I'm not going to live through this. I will not survive. I will not have a life on the other side. And yet experience shows us that like 99% of people actually do. Most of us do live to the other side. So, you know, in many of the therapies that I employ and use as treatments at the core of it is the belief that we have all the wisdom and the knowledge that we need inside ourselves, in our human spirit, in our body. And that it's just like a doula, like we are trying to help bring that into consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the book is not as sort of ethereal as I just made it sound. It really is like, you're going to lose friends. People are going to act awkward. You're going to have to set boundaries. You're going to with vignettes that are about my personal experience. Well, I think that that's so great. And like, I talk about this on the podcast all the time. And when I do like press and stuff that like, you just have this feeling of like, am I doing this right? And after my dad died, the resources I found immediately, I didn't feel like any of them were talking to me as a 30 year old, like, and I was just like, whether it was like the language they were using, like what examples and anecdotes they were talking about, no one has been like, oh, this is what it's like to talk about this while you're dating. Yeah. Like, when do you bring it up? I'm telling you that's such a, that you would have such a unique thing to say about that. I could talk about that a lot because dating in New York is very interesting. During COVID. (laughs) During COVID. But like, when do you bring it up? How do you tell people? And then like, I have another layer of the podcast. Because they can hear all your intimate stuff. Like it's like giving your diary to someone. It's just, it's really interesting. But that's, that's, that's beautiful. Like I would really give some consideration to, you know, doing an offshoot, having that as a conversation, because I, you know, when, when I came back from treatment and was feeling better, you know, I have an academic mind. I come from academia. I have a bunch of degrees. I ordered every single book anyone has ever written. I'm not joking. My husband was like, Oh my God, our Amazon order list is the saddest. We should have shared. We should have created a library. You can see behind me, yeah. this pile by my bed is books I haven't yeah. read yet. There are over 70 books there yeah. and at least 15 of them are grief books. Cause I just I'm like, well, I, I need to know. Yeah. And like, am I doing this right? What do other people do? Oh, maybe I could do that. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Am I books. normal? That I when you told me that books. that was crazy. But I threw them across the room, most of them, like in the middle. Did you finish some, all of them? No, no. no. I mean, <laughs> okay. many of them, I was like, I don't even know how this got published. And I'm a little snobby about that. So what I did was I read 88 books and I was like, these three are really good books or these four or these five. And on my website, I list the ones that I like. I'm not interested in trashing other people's good work. And also I believe other people might like those books, but I, but I really throw down for the ones that I think are good. Same with podcasts. I just like throw down that these ones are good, but part of it is you're 30. I'm not going to recommend the same book that I gave my mom. You know what I mean? My mom was like, when my dad died, I gave my mom this like deeply religious book with all these prayers in it that she loved. But that book also, I didn't want that for myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the reason, like what I have found most comfort in actually is memoirs and conversation, because I just think the me too element of being able, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about like we write and read in order to find ourselves in the text, right? Like this is much more eloquent. Like we read to feel understood. And I just sort of feel like if every person that ever went through a loss wrote a book about it, there would still not be enough conversation about what loss feels like and how overwhelming it is. Mm -hmm. But the sort of texty kind of books, those ones aren't great when you're in early grief anyway, because most people's brains are still not ready for those books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people are like, what grief book should I give someone? I generally say, give it four months before you send any books. People are not reading. And, and if you give it and they open it and they're like, this seems like bullshit, they won't go back to it. And they're not all garbage. They don't all 
So, you know, the early, when my dad died, I would, it was the fall and it was, he died in late summer and I came home and our garden was like making me crazy. So I put a podcast, I put in Nora McInerney's terrible things I for asking. Her. And I listened to just every single episode and every episode I'm like, well, my life is not that bad. I mean, I really think that's what those podcasts are about. Yeah. So, you know, I, I appreciate the books that are out there. Part of the reason that I read them all is that sort of as an, like with an academic background, I don't, I, I don't want to say something if it's been said before. So the reason that I've written this second book is that as a trauma therapist who has been traumatized, I really actually think there are like four or five things that nobody has said quite right or quite true or like explained the why of, Mm -hmm. because my narcissism is not so high that I'm like, everyone just needs to hear this from me. And I got a lot of things. I got a lot of pots on the, on the stove. I would rather be able to say the book was already written. Let me give it to you. Read this book. This is all the information that you need. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to read these books and to hear more from you. And we'll oh, talk thank you. many, many more times. Thank you so much. This was such a lovely conversation. For me um, too. You shared where people can find you, but just if you want to yes. say really quickly again. Yes. So grief is my side, you know, www.griefismysidehustle.com. And then I'm at, I am Megan Reardon Jarvis on Instagram and I am grief is my side hustle on Facebook and I'm on Twitter, but I don't know how to use it. So okay. <laughs> I will put all of that in the show notes for everybody. And thank you so much. This was lovely. And really I can't wait to do it again. Once I'm up and running, you'll come yeah. over. We'll just keep talking, but I, but I, I'm delighted. I really do love your podcast. I mean that really sincerely. I've listened to so many episodes and your curiosity and you just ask the best and greatest questions. And I know that you're making more room for this in your life. And I just sort of feel like that, you know, that's the right thing. It's, you're going to help lots of people with this. So thank you so much for having me on. I loved it. Thank you so much. I loved it too. All right. Thank you um, everyone for listening. You can find us online at www.thegriefcoach.co and on social at the underscore grief coach. Please write nice reviews only on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people looking for this type of content be able to find it. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.